I hope we understand and realize that in this 24-hour period of time we call a day that around the world people have already been up worshiping before us in every tribe and in every tongue and later today as the clock moves around and you move around this globe there will be people rising up to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and they will do it in various ways and in various styles some will be very expressive some will be very liturgical some will do only hymns some will do only courses but what gets us up is that there is only one that we worship, and that is Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It really matters not the style. It matters that it is about the Son, that the Son of God who died to set us free from our sin, from ourself, and from a future without Christ. You know, a lot of people have died for a lot of good causes. Men and women have died on battlefields fighting for freedom or fighting against tyranny. You can tour the sites in Vietnam and in Cambodia and in Europe and in the islands of the Pacific and you can find there the graves of men and women who gave their lives for a good cause, for freedom. We still have the freedom to celebrate and to worship God today because some people put their lives on the line for that to happen. Believing in the freedom of speech, believing in the freedom of assembly, believing in the freedom of worship, the values that we hold as a nation, but nobody died for us like Jesus. Their sacrifice, as great as it is, is nothing like what God did to save us. Because God didn't have to do it. He could have left us and been just in doing it. He could have said, Adam and Eve, you've sinned, you've rejected. I gave you a perfect house and home and environment. I walked in fellowship with you and you decided to listen to a snake. By the way, the snake was the first politician. But uh, anyway, some of you get that in a little bit. Uh, and he could have said, that's it, I'm done. I just, I'm through with you. He could have done it in the flood. He could have said, everybody's going to be gone. But he spared Noah and his family. While preaching repentance and giving others an opportunity to come to faith, only Noah and his family boarded that boat. I still don't know why he saved mosquitoes and gnats. I don't know if they got on two by two. I've never seen just two mosquitoes and just two gnats. I, I don't know how that happened. But God has always been redemptive in his plan. And when he sent Jesus to die on a cross for us, he did his best for us who are at our worst. We're going to look at the book of Isaiah. Uh, if you take your Bible and you turn to the book of Psalms and you keep turning right, you will come to one of the five major prophets, the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53, and we're going to read some of those words, and then we'll be in Acts chapter 2 later on in the message. 
Isaiah 53 is a prophecy of Isaiah hundreds of years before Jesus was born of a virgin. Verse 4, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Now, I want you to look back at those verses And I want you to notice the plural pronouns. Our griefs, our sorrows, our iniquities, our transgressions. We have gone astray. We have turned to our own way. He died for us. This was God in flesh dying for our sin, my sin, your sin. My iniquities, your iniquities. And yet Jesus is the most misunderstood person in history. Although history is his story, and although we're trying to change how we define years as B.C. and A.D. and the year of our Lord, and now, you know, schools and everybody are teaching people a different system, you still got to admit, whichever way you call it, you still got to admit there's a dividing line. And that dividing line is a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. It's not Mohammed. It's not Buddha. It's not some Hindu God. It's not some idol somewhere. The dividing line of human history, there's a pivot point. There's a line in the sand, and that is the coming of Christ to this earth. It has been recognized for 2,000 years, and just because some knucklehead with a Ph.D. thinks that he knows better, it doesn't change the facts. It doesn't change the facts. With all due respect, if there was not that dividing line, then there would be a line that you couldn't get across, and that's the line to get into heaven. There had to be a dividing line. There had to be a moment for the fulfillment of prophecy. And yet Jesus is misunderstood. He's misinterpreted. His words, his ministry are twisted, exploited, misused. He's been used for political purposes. He's been ignored, and yet he is the central figure of history. It helps some people to learn about Jesus if they just read the Bible. He would shed a lot of light on what people think about Jesus. Jared Wilson had a phenomenal quote in his book. He said, he's been fictionalized by the last temptation of Christ, humanized by the passion of the Christ, satirized by South Park, he's been romanticized by countless admirers, and sanitized by the Christian consumer culture. Now you need to let that one sit for a minute. He's been fictionalized, humanized, satirized, romanticized, and sanitized. But if you're going to know Jesus, you need to know who he is in the Bible, not who somebody cleaned him up to make him look like you want him to look. Because he is a wounded Savior. He is a pierced Savior. And we meet him at the intersection of the cross. 
The cross brings us to the one place where we can find salvation. Jesus, our Savior, his life was sinless. He died for sinners. His resurrection was unexplainable. And you and I cannot get to heaven by good works. We just can't. Now, you know people and I know people. And they're good people. I mean, they're good people. They do good things. They volunteer and do good things. They, they serve in places and they give of themselves and they go help their neighbor. But folks, that doesn't get you into heaven. That's not what gets you into heaven. What gets you into heaven is a road that you can't get on unless you come to Jesus. The, the world's road is broad. God's road is narrow. And he died not so that we could work hard to get there. He died because his is the finished work of God. There is no more sacrifice needed because Christ died for our sins. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. There was a divine invasion. There was a divine intervention with a divine intent. God invaded this world intentionally. He intervened in life when we could not save ourselves and gave us his son Christ. So the first thing we need to understand is if there's no death, there's no life. If there's no death of Christ, there's no life. Jesus should not be misunderstood. He was very clear on his mission, his purpose, and his calling. He was not a martyr. He was not just a good teacher. He was not just a prophet for his day. He was the son of God. He said, I and the father are one. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. After Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus then began to tell them that he must suffer and die. He made it very clear crystal clear, or as my friend Jay Strack would say, Waterford crystal clear. Jesus made it very clear that he came to die for our sin. He did not stutter when he said it. It should not have been under, misunderstood when he said it because the religious leaders of the day knew all the prophecies about a coming Messiah and they just chose to interpret them the way they wanted to that fit their system, not the way that fit the scripture. The religious leader knew that only God could forgive sin and yet Jesus claimed to forgive sin and they were offended by it. It's ironic that they knew the sacrificial system required a blood sacrifice. And yet, when Jesus showed up, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world, when Jesus showed up, the one sacrificial lamb, the final sacrificial lamb, the unique one, the one that would mean it would never be another lamb required to be raised, another spotless lamb to be brought to the temple. When Jesus came and when he gave himself as the Lamb of God, every religious person in Israel should have said, he's the one. But they killed him. You say, yeah, you know, that's the problem. The Jews killed Jesus. No, you killed Jesus. It was the, it was the 
accusations of the Jews and the hands of the Romans, but you and I were there. Jesus died for your sin. Jesus died for my sin. It got real quiet. See, we think what Jesus came for was for people that are really worse than us. All those people that don't go to church, those pagans, those Charles Lowry calls those heathen out there just, you know, going out and, and doing their things on the weekend while we're coming to church. We, we're so much better than they are. I want to tell you, let me just tell you, you need to understand. The Bible says you are a wicked, depraved, vile, iniquitous person. And you are capable of any and all sin apart from the grace of God. It didn't take any more grace for God to save somebody on death row than it takes for God to save a six-year-old in this church. No more, no less. It takes the same blood, it takes the same cross. He claimed authority that only God could claim, and that authority was to forgive us of sin. You better be glad that Jesus claimed that authority, because if he hadn't, you've got no hope. You've got no hope. Jesus said he was the way. Definite article, the truth, definite article, the life. He said, no one, no one, not one person comes to the Father but through me. In other words, you can't get to heaven unless you've been forgiven. You see, Jesus said, I am emphatically the only way. And part of the reasons why we don't bring our one and win our one and talk to anybody about Jesus, we think God graves on a curve, and after all, they're good people, and they, they live in the South, and they, you know, they, they fly the flag, and, and they stand up during the national anthem, and they do all that. So God wouldn't send anybody like that to hell. Listen, he's, Judas is in hell, and he was in the inner circle with Jesus. I mean, he was one of the 12. The high priest is in hell today because he rejected Jesus. The one that offered the sacrifice, the one that went into the Holy of Holies, he's in hell today because he rejected the Son of God and demanded that he be crucified. No cross, no hope. So let's talk about what Isaiah has said here. First of all, the method of crucifixion hadn't even been invented when Isaiah prophesied how the Messiah would die. So you say, well, is it, was it the time? Was it the time? Was it the time? Well, the first sign that it was the time would have been when crucifixion was invented. So it, it, it was hundreds of years before crucifixion was invented. And, and then the second thing was this was a prophecy hundreds of years before Christ was born. A virgin shall conceive a child, Isaiah said. And so when you look at the prophecies of Isaiah, he is talking about things that are hundreds of years into the future, that he would be wounded, that he would be pierced through, that his hands and feet would be nailed to a cross, that his side would be pierced with a spear, Psalm 22, that he would die. You look at the stories in the Bible, the prophecies in the Bible about Christ and about his death and that Messiah would come to pay the price for our sin. But, but here's what we do. Here's how we've sanitized Jesus. I got a whole bunch of Christian t-shirts. Sometimes we need to get Jesus off the t-shirt and get him in our heart and in our lips. T-shirt's not enough. Well, I wear a cross around my neck. 
I know people that wear crosses around their neck that could cuss a blue streak. That doesn't mean you're a Christian. You see, we've cheapened Jesus where we've designated him as the newest, coolest T-shirt or the newest, coolest hat or the newest, nicest piece of jewelry that we have. But that's sanitizing him. Our Savior did too much for us to cheapen what he did with petty things. One person said, we can't convey the full ghastliness of the crucifixion to a modern audience. We don't, do not understand it because we have never seen anything like it in the flesh. In New Testament times, everyone knew what it looked like, smelled like, sounded like. In fact, our English word for excruciating is derived from the word crux, which is the Latin word for cross. In fact, the word cross was such a vile, vulgar word that no proper Roman would ever speak it out loud. I'm talking about a pagan. No proper Roman would ever speak the word cross out loud. And yet that is our calling card. Our calling card is the cross. We're not ashamed of the cross of Jesus Christ. Look in your notes, uh, Stephen Siemens. Crucifixion was reserved for the dregs of society, outcasts, slaves, and common criminals. The fact that there were, one was crucified defined him or her as a miserable, wretched being that didn't deserve to exist. It was intended to display and humiliate its victim. Adrian Rogers said, Calvary was earth's greatest tragedy and God's greatest triumph. He died as our substitute, the just for the unjust. He had no sin. He died for our sin. Romans says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible is very clear about sin and judgment and grace and mercy. Somebody has to pay the price for sin. The cross calls us to a lost world. I want to ask you to turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. The cross, if Jesus is our Savior and our message is the cross, then the cross calls us to go into a lost world, to be his witnesses in a lost world. It's the message of the early church. It's the message of the apostles. It is the message of the church for the last 2,000 years. Acts chapter 2 and verse 22, the Spirit has come, has descended on these disciples. Peter is preaching, and he says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus of Nazarene, a man attested to you by God, with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. Now just stop right there. Peter is saying, nothing Jesus did was in secret. 
You didn't get here when he got to Jerusalem and tried to kill him because you didn't know anything about it. You followed him around. You tried to trap him. You saw the miracles. You saw the dead raised. You saw the lepers healed. You saw the blind see. You saw the storms calm. You saw the feeding of the 5,000. And you, he's talking to the Jews. Notice what he's doing. He's not saying, they all going to be pointing fingers at the Romans now, aren't you? No, 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 no. Let's go here. Let's go here. You did it. Why? Because you should have known better. He's saying to the religious people in Jerusalem, gathered for the Passover, to celebrate their love of God, their love of Jehovah, who has delivered them, wow, through blood over a doorpost. God passed over because of the blood on the doorpost. He's saying to them, you've passed over the Son of God. You've missed what he's done for you. You haven't connected the dots. This man, verse 23, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. Now he's mentioning the Romans. And put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Peter says this death was no accident. Peter's saying this death was no afterthought, that Jesus got here and his ministry got derailed and he just got caught in a trap. He's in the wrong place at the wrong time. He says, it's not an afterthought. God didn't come up with this. There's no plan B. This was plan A, and it was plan A carried out the whole time. There was no misunderstanding about who Jesus was. He was clear about who he was. But you nailed him to the cross. I love verse 24. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power let me give you a little thought here you need to remember. God never leaves with man the final decision on any matter. God never leaves it to you, the final decision on any matter. You crucified him, but God. You did this, but God said this. Well, we decided, but God said. We decided to kill him. We decided to put him in a grave. We decided to roll a stone in front of it. And God said, not a problem for me. And God raised him up. You say, well, we don't really know that God raised him up. Well, you know, I can, I can help you with that. We know that God raised him up because he's the only religious leader in history that does not have a grave that has a body in it. You can go visit the grave of Joseph Smith. You can go visit the grave of Muhammad. You cannot visit the grave of Jesus and find a body. It's empty. I've been inside it. There's nobody living there. You walk in, you walk out. And on the door it says, he is risen. God decided. God raised him up. Hey, even his disciples weren't sure it was going to happen. The women show up. Where is he? What's happened to him? You know what it just proves? It proves that those first disciples were Baptist. Because Jesus had been telling them, they're going to kill me. I'm going to rise. You tear down this temple, I'm coming back. And, and he, listen, when the women aren't listening, then I know the men aren't listening. 
And Jesus has said, you kill me, I'm coming back. My father's going to raise me. You know, Jonah's in the belly of the whale for three days. I'm going to be, and I'm coming out, and this is the way it is. And they came in, and they looked, and they met a gardener, didn't recognize it was Jesus. Peter and John go into the, and they look intently. They're staring around. They're going, well, he's got to be hiding under here somewhere. He's got to be, I don't know. Look, look behind that rock right there. See if he's over there. I bet he's just curled up in the corner somewhere. What, what in the world happened to him? They didn't remember. And then Thomas said, unless I see the nail pierces, I, I'm not going to believe it. Unless I see it, I'm not. And then when he saw it, what did he say? My Lord and my God. Let me tell you something, folks. You don't have to see Jesus to believe in him, but you better see that he's the only way. Jesus is not going to come and appear to you and say, now I'm standing right here. Doubting Thomas, do you see me? No, but I want to tell you, he's appearing to you by the Spirit speaking to your heart and saying, I'm the only way. I'm the only way. Peter points out his life, his miracles. He points out his death. He points out the resurrection. Peter and Paul both, both preached a gospel centered on the cross. 1 Corinthians 1.22, For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, foolishness. I want you to listen very carefully to this quote from Alistair McGrath. He likened what the apostles wrote about the cross to a modern business or corporation choosing the image of a firing squad, a gas chamber, or an electric chair as its corporate logo. So just imagine, instead of an apple on your computer, there's a firing squad pictured on your computer, or an electric chair, or a gas chamber. This is what the cross is like. And this is what he said, its members would instantly be regarded as perverted, sick, having a morbid obsession with death, or having a nauseating interest in human suffering. Only an organization determined to fail as quickly and spectacularly as possible would be mad enough to choose such a symbol. We chose it. We chose it. Why? Because all the symbols of this world are trying to express life. Oh, there's life. There's joy. There's happiness. Do this. Do that. Our symbol is a cross. And the cross says there's no life until there's death. Death of a Savior. Death to self. Dead to your sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2, For I am determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. These disciples turned the world's thinking upside down. God's kingdom operates upside down from the way this world operates. God said it will be through humiliation and suffering and a blood sacrifice, and then God will raise his son from the dead and highly exalt him. We'll get to that passage in the next few weeks. So the final thing is on you. Because no decision is a decision. No decision is a decision. We have to decide. We have the opportunity to embrace Christ. The cross defines our problem. The cross tells us what the solution to our problem is. 
The cross says our problem is sin. But the cross says the solution is a savior. Now, we have a lot of people right now panicked about the coronavirus, and, and it gets stirred up, and we won't get into debate about all that. But can I tell you something? How sinking selfish would I be if I had in this pocket right here the cure to the coronavirus? And you came to me and said, I think I've got it. And I say, well, I'm not going to tell you how to get rid of it. You just die in it. Just go put yourself in quarantine and hope you don't die. And if you do, it's not my problem. I got it right here. I'm not going to share it with you. Folks, when we don't tell people about Jesus, it's like having the cure for what the world fears. And we say, no, mm -mm, mm -mm. no, just die and go to hell. We don't care. Can I tell you something? Those people you're afraid to talk to, those people you're afraid are going to hurt their feelings, those people that you're afraid that they're going to defriend you on Facebook and you're going to lose a follower on Twitter, if you and I don't share the gospel with them, they're going to die and spend eternity in hell. No decision, no life. And they have to make the decision. You can't make it for them. You can't talk them into being saved. But you can share good news with them, and then it's on them. It's on them. Here's the cure. Here's what can fix your heart. Here's what can heal your heart. Here's what can take care of your brokenness, your sin, your unforgiving spirit, your attitude, your addictions. Here's what can take care of it. I don't want it. That's a decision. You see, to not decide is to decide. To say, I'll wait till later is to decide. The Bible says, today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. The devil always tells us to put it off. Well, I'll put it off to a more convenient time. You don't have a promise of a more convenient time. You don't have a promise of another breath. You don't have a promise of another moment. The cross shows us how depraved we are, how sinful, how wretched we are, and that our sin put Jesus on that cross. Jeremiah 17, 9, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? At the cross, Jesus did not just experience physical suffering. He experienced the wrath of God. The Father had to turn his face away from Jesus. Because God could not look on sin, and he put sin on Jesus. My sin, your sin, every sin. From Adam and Eve until the last person on this earth, whenever that is. All sin of all people for all time on one person at one moment in six hours of living hell. And what broke him the most was not the physical pain. What broke him the most was, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Because God cannot look on sin except through blood. Somebody has to pay a price. And so either we accept the pardon of Jesus 
through the blood of Jesus and the grace of Jesus and the forgiveness of Jesus, we accept the pardon of Jesus and come to him and find salvation, or we end up paying the price for our sin in hell ourselves. One of my favorite hymns is an old hymn. Actually, it's a Wesleyan hymn <clears throat> called And Can It Be. I just want to read some words to you. Some of them are a little dated, but I think you will get the point. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? He left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, oh, my God, it found out me. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. No condemnation now, I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love. How can it be that God, my God, would die for me and for you. Would you stand with heads bowed and eyes closed? I want to ask you if you need Jesus today to step out right now. Don't wait on anybody else. Just step out right now. Come find one of these men at the front and say, Today, I need to give my heart to Jesus. I realize that Christ died for my sin that he gave his life for me. You step out and you come right now. Some of you need to just with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, you need to in that seat just worship a living God who died for you. Worship a God who shed his blood for you. Praise a God who saw you in your sin and reached out and convicted you in your sin and you responded to Him. You just need where you are or at this altar just to lift your hands to God and say, God, I don't deserve amazing love. I don't deserve amazing grace. I can't believe that you love me that much. But today, I worship you for what you've done for me. You come. You respond right now.